John chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 22 through 36 to the end of the chapter. I'm just going to read uh, verses 22 through 30 right now. It says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon and Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put to, into prison. Verse 25, Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear, the, bear, wit, uh, bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Lord, we just pray that as we uh, focus on these verses here, Lord, that we would understand something about your kingdom, Lord, about being a servant in your kingdom, and about your nature, Lord. Change us in the name of Jesus, amen. If you notice verse 22, verse 22 starts with the phrase, after this. One of the rules of Bible study, when it says after this, guess what it's talking about? Things that happened after this. And so that would be everything that just happened, that John just relayed. So um, during the Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples and his mother and his brothers, they all went to Jerusalem. There was the Passover, which is a big, giant festival where hundreds of thousands of people descend upon Jerusalem to worship. And so during that time, Jesus cleanses the temple. He walks into the temple. He turns over the tables, tells everybody, hey, worship is not a business. Get out. And then, uh, after the cleansing of the temple, it says that there were many signs and wonders. So he walked through the city, and he started healing people. He was casting out demons. He was doing miracles in their midst. Just absolutely, uh, you know, uh, if, if he was kind of um, in the shadows up until that point, people definitely heard about Jesus then. And then, uh, that constituted all those miracles and those signs that week constituted one of the religious leaders named Nicodemus to come to Jesus at night. And he comes at night and he starts this conversation with him and Jesus tells him he must be born again. And so basically all those conversations and all those things, it's after those things, verse 22 happens, which says after this, um, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside and he remained there with them and was baptizing. It's difficult to pull it out here quite in the English, uh, at least in the ESV, but it says there in verse 22 that Jesus remained in the Judean countryside. The Judean uh, countryside is in the south part of Israel, and uh, the Galilean area is in the north, and then the middle is Samaria, just to give you a little idea there. But it says that he remained with them, and some of your translations say that he, uh, he spent time with his disciples. And because, there, because that word uh, for remained with his disciples is the Greek word, word uh, diatribo, basically, where we get our word diatribe, right? And you think of a, a tr diatribe as some kind of prolonged negative discourse, but that's not what was going on. He wasn't talking negatively. 
Um, that's a modern thing. The archaic understanding of that word is just, is, is, is the idea is to wear something out. It takes a long time, like your jeans, you know, you wear them out over time. And the idea is that he's just spending time with his disciples. He's withdrawing from all the crowds and all the things that were happening in Jerusalem, all the things that just happened, he's decompressing with his disciples. He's hanging out with his disciples. I think that's important. I love, um, I love the, the fishing analogy. How many of you have heard the fishing analogy of discipleship where there's a time to cast your net, there's a time to uh, bring in your net, and there's a time to mend your net? When we look at the disciples in the New Testament, we find them usually, the ones who are fishing, they were either casting their nets when Jesus came up to them or they were bringing in their nets or they were mending their nets. And so there's this picture of uh, in ministry, in life, it just being a disciple of Jesus Christ, that there's a time when we're casting our nets, there's a time when we're reeling in the catch, but there's also a time when Jesus pulls us aside and we're just mending the nets. There's a time where he sits us down, he pulls us out of the city, so to speak, and we're just spending time with him and he's teaching us about what just happened or what's coming ahead. And uh, that's a really important uh, discipline to have. The Lord's been speaking to me about that. I need to go mend some nets right now because there's been a lot of casting and there's a lot of been reeling in my life. And so need to spend time just uh, ministering to the Lord and spending time with Him. How many of you are there right now? You need to be refreshed. Listen, these disciples, they, they started to follow Jesus and they're just getting blown away. I mean, He's changing water into wine. He takes them up to Jerusalem, flips over the tables in the Capitol building, basically, and scatters everybody. And then what does he do? And he starts doing all these miracles around people. Then he has a conversation with Nicodemus, and these guys that are following Jesus are going, okay, now what do we do here? This is a lot more than I bargained for, maybe, or like this is exciting, or who knows what it is. And Jesus needs to spend some time with them speaking, and I, I think that's important. He's pouring into them. A good thing to remember as the Lord disciplines us and disciples us by his spirit, by his word in the various seasons of our lives. Sometimes we're casting, sometimes we're reeling in, sometimes the Lord has us mend our nets, right? So Jesus remained with his disciples. Verse 22 says that they were also baptizing. Life doesn't just stop. Ministry doesn't just stop. You notice that? People were coming to meet Jesus in the middle of the wilderness when he kind of withdrew from the city. His focus was time with his disciples, but what was happening? People were coming anyways. So what happens? It says that they were baptizing. Jesus, it says here that Jesus was baptizing, but if you flip forward to chapter 4, verse 2, John clarifies Jesus wasn't baptizing, his disciples were. The baptism um, that was going on was the same baptism that John's disciples were performing, John the Baptist. They were baptizing people as a symbol of public repentance, of public repentance. And it, it kind of, uh, it, symboli it was symbolized, that repentance was symbolized by a public washing, so to speak. And this baptism was really closely associated with the Old Testament, um, Old Covenant way of cleansing people and bringing them into the fold of the Old Testament community of believers. If you weren't a Jew and you were on the outside and you wanted to become 
uh, a, a Jew, even though you weren't a natural Jew, you had to go through cleansing, right? And what they would do is they would, you would go through all these rites and then they would wash you and you'd be symbolically cleansed and be able to now participate in the worship of the covenant of believers in the Old Testament. And so the baptism of John the Baptist and the disciples um, at this point, uh, they, as they were preaching repentance, was really that public confession of repentance. They were saying, yes, we are totally done. We're lost. We, we agree with what you're, say, what you're saying. John was walking around saying to people, like, you brood of vipers. You know, who warned you, you know, from the wrath to come? And people were being struck in their spirit as they're being convicted by the Holy Spirit over the sinfulness of the nation, of themselves. They were coming to John, what, what do we need to do? And so there was this baptism that said, we're done with this old life. Now we're moving into, the, we're ready for the Messiah. We're ready for the one who's going to come and, and baptize us truly. And, and that's what the baptism there was about. It was, it, was a, it was a public response. It was a public outcry of repentance as they prepared themselves for the Messiah and the work that he was going to do. Now, the fulfillment of baptism didn't happen at this point. It was all symbolic. It was looking forward to when Jesus would die and rise again, because that's what baptism, Christian baptism, is truly associated with. It isn't something that prepares a person for, Messi for the Messiah. Next week when we gather together, we're not preparing you for to, you know, to be saved. That's, that's not the purpose of baptism. We're not preparing you to uh, encounter the Messiah. Baptism is a response to what he has already done in the heart of a believer. Isn't that different? That's different. So there's various churches out there that say you must be baptized in order to be saved. And no, baptism is a response to the, it's a physical symbol of, of the spiritual reality that already happened in your life by the Lord Jesus. It's in response to what the Messiah has already done in the heart through his death and resurrection. Now, let me clarify it. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Romans 6, 1 through 4. It puts it this way. Paul says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? I'm not going to talk all about that right now. But Paul says, by no means. Why? We are those who have died to sin. How then can we live in it any longer? How have we died to sin? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his what? Into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Jesus Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have new life. Baptism is a physical, public identification with the death of Jesus and the life of Jesus. The death and burial of Jesus and the life, the resurrection of Jesus. And so we too are done with sin. That's, I, I mean, I think the apostles had a really hardcore view of sin. I love John in 1 John. He says, if we sin... You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. What do you mean if, John? I think he means if. 
There's a tremendous holiness. I think when Hebrews is talking about a pure and holy people, I think he's talking about we, we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a change. In other words, when Christ, when we, Christ moves into our hearts, guess what moves out? Sin. And so what there is is we enter into sanctification. We enter into this cleansing, so to speak, of the temple of our body of the sin and, and the Lord Jesus takes our lifetime and we, we become more and more and more and more like Jesus, not less and less and less and less like him. And so I think when we, when we are, in, I'm sorry, the believer's baptism, let me connect this back. The believer's baptism is really a public identification. It's a public identification with the private thing that the Lord has done in our hearts. But us being awesome religionists, we like to think that the public thing is what actually saves us. No, it's, it's a work of God's grace in our hearts that he died, he rose again, and by faith in his finished work, we are united with him in his death and his resurrection. We become dead to sin and we become alive in Christ. And you know that because you are now convicted over your sin by the Holy Spirit in your heart. Isn't that interesting? Believers have a tremendous conviction over sin in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And you know when you're not walking in the Spirit. It convicts you. And so what do you do? You crucify the flesh. You deny yourself. You pick up the cross and follow Jesus. How do you do that? You obey. How do you do that? You deny yourself. How do you do that? You obey. <laughs> Under what power does that happen? Under the power of Christ in you. Where you didn't have power over sin before, the Lord now is empowering you to do what you never could do before. But we must deny ourselves and allow him to do what he wants to do. I love that. So that believer's baptism is just really a public identification with what Jesus has done. The real baptism, the real baptism is a work of the Spirit. It's a work of the Spirit, not water. Do you know that? For those of you who think you were saved because you were dipped in water, that is not the baptism, the ultimate baptism. That water baptism is looking at something. It's pointing to something. It's pointing to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's pointing to the work that the Lord did in regenerating your heart. He washed you and cleansed you from his own sin by his spirit. He raised you to life by his spirit. He made you a new creation by his spirit. John was saying, I baptize you with water to repentance, but the one who's coming after me, I'm not even able to untie his sandals. He's the one who's gonna baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives true life, who truly cleanses your sin. He's the one who truly gives you new life. It's not by water, it's by his spirit. And so water baptism for us is that outward and public declaration of the inward baptism he already manifested in our lives. 
And if that's you, if you're born again, Jesus says, now show it. <laughs> Obey me. How? Publicly declare. And that's what baptism is. It's a public declaration of what he's already done in your heart. It's one of the few things he asks us to do publicly in a ritual form. One is baptism, one is communion. And so baptism is a one-time thing. Communion is as often as you gather together and decide to do this, do it in remembrance of me. If you want to be baptized next Sunday, come talk to me after the service in response to the Lord, amen? But there were those who came out to the Judean countryside where Jesus and the disciples were, and Jesus would baptize them as an open declaration of repentance. In verse 23 says, And John, that's John the Baptist, was also baptizing at these two places, and on in Salim, because water was plentiful there. That's important to know. You got to go where the water is to baptize people. So John was also baptizing at the Wilcoxes, because, <laughs> you know, yeah. For John had not yet been put in prison. Verse 24, John is going to be put in prison and he will be executed. Verse 25, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Hey, Rabbi, uh, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. And so John the Baptist was baptizing in the north while as these places are in the north, while Jesus was ministering in the south, in the Jew, outside of Jerusalem, in that area. And while this was happening, John's disciples have a discussion with a Jew about purification. Now, it doesn't say who that Jew was, but it does say the discussion was about purification, which I mentioned was how the Jews converted people into, um, into Judaism through that baptism. And... and uh, that those, those ceremonially cleansing people, basically. And so although we don't have the details of the discussion, it seems the discussion might have been about all the people who were starting to be cleansed, who were starting to be baptized by this other rabbi. Other rabbi. And so the disciples of John are concerned that people are going to this other rabbi that John had borne witness of. Let me say that I can relate with the disciples of John. When, sadly, you know, when there's a work of God that begins to gain the attention and I'm not involved in it, there's some kind of selfish thing that goes on in my heart. Anybody else got that going or is it just me again? Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, look at what's going on over there. Why aren't we the center of attention anymore? Why aren't we the center of attention? Hey, listen, this is our ministry. This is what God, I'm sorry, I'm confessing to you. You know, no, I'm supposed to be the super spiritual John the Baptist response, but, you know, there's just this thing. They've been baptizing. God's worked mightily through John the Baptist. They heard John speak of Jesus. They saw him. He's testifying about them, but I think in their hearts they're kind of going, hey, um, yeah, but I don't like that, you know, there's all these people are going over there. They're, they're getting purified over there. What, what's going on? Jesus' disciples struggle with this. If you remember, uh, the apostle John, who's writing all of this, he's recording this in the book of John. Remember in Mark 9, 38 through 41, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Don't stop him. 
For no one who does a mighty work in my name will, will soon be able to afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, I don't know about the motives of John the Baptist's disciple totally. I'm kind of guessing here. But my guess is that like John and the apostle, John the Apostle there in Mark, or like me, they're struggling with uh, the attention going somewhere else. But the whole reason we talk about that is because look at the contrast. You want to know what's going on here, but look at the contrast. Look at the answer that John gives in verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. You know, Jesus said of John the Baptist in Matthew eleven eleven that John the Baptist was the greatest born among women up to that point. And then he goes on to say the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. But up, up to that point, there was no one greater that had been born among women than John the Baptist. Greater than Moses, greater than Noah, greater than Abraham, greater than Solomon, greater than David, greater than all of them. John the Baptist was above all. Do you ever wonder why John was called the greatest by Jesus? Jesus tells us, so it helps out. Jesus said that he was more than a prophet. He was the messenger sent before the Messiah, who is to prepare the way before him. That's why Mary was blessed among women. She had Jesus. No one else got to experience that. She has a special place in the kingdom, not to be worshipped, not to be prayed to, but she's blessed among women. But John, here, Jesus says in Matthew 11, man, he's, he's the greatest. What made John the greatest was that he was the one who would prepare the way for the eternal word for Jesus Christ to come into the world. What an honor. What made him great was not John. What made him great was who he was serving and the position that he had called him to. John was a man sent by God. We read that. Jesus was God that became man. Two different realms, two different levels. Jesus, superior in every way. And this is where John is going with this. And John the Baptist knew it. He knew his place. He knew his calling. He knew who Jesus was and he knew who he was in light of that. And that produced a tremendous humility within him. Someone said that the number one qualifier for ministry is humility. John knew his place before his God. And John knew who he was in light of Jesus. And so when his disciples come to him and let him know that people are starting to flock towards Jesus, John just says, listen, I was given this ministry by God. This is about him. 
You heard me say that I am not the Christ, that my purpose was to point people to him. My purpose is to point people to him. And then John paints this picture of the absolute joy he has in hearing from his disciples that what he was sent to do is being accomplished. Isn't that the exact opposite of how we react? We start to undermine, or maybe just me, we start to undermine, (laughs) we start to complain, we start to think, oh, you know, instead of like, is God being glorified? Are people being pointed towards Jesus? Are people coming to Jesus? Is his name becoming great? Are lives being changed? That's awesome. Lord, to be a a servant in your house, to be a, a part of that, it's just, what an honor. You know, this happens every time we, we have a graduation at the Christian Aid Center. You just, you know, you're, you're so focused on what you're doing. I go in and I, yeah, I, I teach on, on Wednesday mornings, and you teach a, you teach a Bible study, you just kind of just, you just chug away at that part of it. And then someone graduates. And you walk into that room, and then you see all the other pieces that God has been using to work in this person's life, and you realize how insignificant you are in that whole, that whole thing. And, and, you, and you also realize just the power of God working through the body of Christ in someone's life. And there are more significant people than others and all that type of stuff, but, and you just walk away with a sense of awe of God, of what he is doing and how awesome that is, and just, you just start to praise him. Lord, that I would be able to be a part of what you're doing, just to be faithful in one aspect and not to have to do it all. I just, I think that's the body of Christ, right? That's us. He is the head. We're, we're the stinky pinky toe sometimes. You know what I'm just saying? We're in the shoe. No one sees us. But make no mistake, it's significant in the big picture because of what Jesus is doing through his body. And when all the glory and when all the honor and when all the praise is taken off of the mouthpiece or whatever it might be and it's put on the head, the true head of the church, man, that's, that's the way it should be. How glorious that Jesus would arise in the hearts of his people that Jesus would be pointed to, that he would be lifted up. And John paints this picture to help his disciples understand this. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John is painting this picture of his role to the Messiah. He says, I'm like the friend of a bridegroom. I'm like the best man. And in the Judean culture back then, um, in, in a Judean wedding, the best man was like the guy who arranged everything. He's the master of ceremonies. And one of, the, one of the privileges that the master of ceremonies had in the wedding unlike we walk the father, father walks the bride down, is that actually the, the master of ceremonies, the, the, the friend of the bridegroom, would take the bride and he would bring her to 
the groom at his house. And then he would hand her off. So he's orchestrating all these things. He's doing things. He's arranging things so that the attention could be put on what? On the, on the groom and the bride. And this is the picture that John's saying. Listen, my job is to hand them off, to point them to, to bring the bride to the groom, to the Messiah. He says, I've done it. This is exciting. It's happening. People are going to Jesus. They're interacting with him. The Messiah is here. He's talking to the people. And what does he say at the end of this whole thing? I must decrease. And he must increase. It is unfitting when the center of attention is the best man at a wedding. Keep attention. Take notes. Who's the center of attention? bride and the groom. Correct? And it's fitting and right when the groom just humbles himself and says, all you, this has all been for you, all glory and honor to you, Lord Jesus. Here you go. He must increase, verse 30, but I must decrease. That's great humility. Our lives are to be like stars. I like what John MacArthur says. He says it about ministers, but I think it's just about us. He says that we're to be like stars in the sky. I'm paraphrasing even what he said, but he says we're, we're to be like stars in the sky that fade as the sun rises in the hearts of God's people. Isn't that awesome? That we're just little blips kind of all declaring his glory and then the sun rises and the background fades and it's Jesus in the heart of the people. And this is the problem with religion. That we love to elevate men. We love to put pretty clothes on them and big hats. We love to slick them out and give them jets and all this stuff because aren't they just the anointed of God and all this type of stuff. Listen, Jesus deserves the Learjet. Amen? Amen? Jesus is the one who deserves the royal robe and all those things. And, and he, of course, on that day, he's going to clothe us in his splendor, which is just a gracious, awesome thing. But what did the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus, what was he wearing? Camel's hair. You guys are going, oh, that's, that's hip. No, it wasn't. You're in the desert. It's hot. It's horrible. He's got a belt. It's hard to preach this to this, you know, this culture these days because he was eating bugs. You're like, well, yeah, that's, you know, he's on his diet. No, he was eating whatever he could get, honey and locusts. He was one crying in the wilderness. Great humility. Jesus is, that guy is great. And he lived it out. Think of Jesus, the greatest of all time. Where was he born? Who were his parents? What was he doing? What was he writing? There was a humility. He knew who he was, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and yet he became a servant. Watch for spiritual pride. Pray for me 
and spiritual pride. But he alone is to receive the glory in the church. He is the head. He is the Lord. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, I don't know who's talking here. Is this John, the apostle, kind of recapping, which I might think he is because he kind of does this at the end of certain things? Or is this John the Baptist continuing to talk? I don't know, and I really didn't flesh it out the way I wanted to. But we do know there are no quotation marks in the Greek, and so some tend to think one or the other, but we, let's just focus on what's said here. Jesus is from above. He is above all. Right? And he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. This could be saying that men like John the Baptist, although they're enlightened and empowered by the Holy Spirit, although they're the prophets, they're still men and um, they have a limited ability to communicate the things of the kingdom because John was from the earth. I don't, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, that, maybe that's what it's, what's being said there. That, that kind of makes sense. And a, Jesus is from above all. In other words, it's his time to communicate. He's actually seen what he's seen. Look at him. And I think we see that in other verses where it says, in the past times he spoke to us through the prophets and all these people, but now he's spoken to us through his son. The father of the baptism says, listen to my son, right? We're at the transfiguration. But I tend to think this is saying that mankind likes what mankind thinks. I think that mankind, we like to hear earthly wisdom from earthly people. That's the language we speak. That's the language we speak. Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2.14, the natural, that is the earthly person, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, he, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. How many of you have lived in San Diego? Okay, you guys don't count. <laughs> Just kidding, you do. But if I were to start to describe San Diego to you, I'd start to grab streets and taco stands and how life works and all those types of things. Many of you have no clue of, of the ins and outs and all that type of stuff, except for my brothers right there. We can talk tacos, right? I've lived there. I know what it's like. I've seen it. That's on an earthly plane. Jesus is from the kingdom. He's been with the Father. He's seen the Father. He's seen God. He's spoken from all eternity with God, whatever that relationship was like. John 17, you can read about it. And this eternal God breaks into our world and starts communicating to us about his kingdom and how he communicates. He has to kind of talk in earthly terms to us. He has to use things that we understand on earth, and as he's doing these parables, we still don't receive it. And that's the point here. Uh, Jesus had just said, uh, it just said a little while earlier, he said, uh, you know, hey, 
to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I'm from above. You're from below. You only stand, understand fleshly, broken, sinful, world-type things. Apart from God breaking through, we're, we're sunk. Apart from God translating, we're sunk. And Jesus is communicating heavenly truths to an earthly people. They rejected John the Baptist's testimony of Christ, and they killed him. And soon after, who are they going to kill? They're going to kill the very Messiah himself. And this is why Jesus tells his disciples, hey, if they hate you because you're from above, well, they hated me first. Expect it. Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. He has seen the Father. He has heard the Father, and yet no one receives his testimony. Verse 33, but hey, good news. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. What in the world is he talking about? Well, in the olden days, you had a signet ring, and if you wanted to put your seal of approval on something, you would go ahead and take the wax, you'd put it on it, and you'd put your seal on it. In other words, you sign on the dotted line. That's kind of the, 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 the imagery that's being used there. So it means if you receive Christ, if you receive his testimony, you are saying that God is true because that is what Christ is speaking of. You're verifying what he says is true. You're putting your seal upon Christ. You're saying that I identify fully. I believe you, Jesus, that you're from Christ and what you say is from God. I believe your testimony. I, I sign on the dotted line there. Verse 34, for the kingdom, for, sorry, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The prophets, including John the Baptist, were empowered and enabled by the Holy Spirit, but they were limited because of their own sinfulness. They didn't have, even though they were filled with the Spirit, it wasn't in the same sense that Jesus, as Jesus was. Jesus was without sin. The fullness of the Spirit, the Spirit without measure was upon him, was upon Jesus. Isaiah says that it's the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and the might and the Spirit and the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. That's Isaiah 11, the sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit, and obviously the fruit of the Spirit and all those things. At verse 32, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Jesus is from above. He comes down. He's bearing witness of what he's seen, and then John talks about his authority. He says, John says, and listen, the Father loves the Son, and he's given all things into his hands. In heaven and on earth, under the earth, in heaven, in space, seen, unseen, laws of nature, everything, everything is under his authority. Now, all things excludes the Father. We know that because of 1 Corinthians 15, after he starts speaking about the resurrected bodies we'll have and the resurrection, Paul speaks what Christ will do with all of his 
awesome power. He has all authority. Remember Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. Now go into the world and make disciples. All authority means all. Verse 28 in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, and this is what Jesus is going to do with that authority, the ultimate thing that Jesus is going to do with his authority. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have, been, who have fallen asleep or who have died. For as by a man, that would be Adam, came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Adam brought death, Jesus brings life. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, and so in Christ all shall be made alive. The simple, we're all sons of Adam, we're all sinners. Well, there's another son of Adam, so to speak, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, who is without sin and completed the will of the Father. He brings life. But each in its own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, he who belongs to Christ, and here we go, then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So this is what Jesus is up to. He's bringing everything under the rule and reign of his authority. This is what's happening. He's gathering people out of the world to be a part of his kingdom. And guess what happens with those who reject his kingdom? He will destroy every single rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Verse 26, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Hallelujah. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now, clarifying, just Paul needs to clarify. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is, exp he's, he is except who put the things under subjection of him. It's not talking about the Father. When all things are subjected to, to, to him, to the Son, when he does that, when he brings everything under his rule and reign, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all and in all. So with, when it says that Jesus is above all, we go, yeah, he's, he's up there. No. He is going to bring the world under his subjection. Right now is a time of grace because he's not doing it by force. He's doing it by the gospel, that those who would come, come to him. Today is the day of salvation. Don't reject it. Come to him, that you may have life. But there's coming a time when you get to the book of Revelation where he's going to start to bring the wrath of God upon the world, and he's going to clear house. And what happens at the end of that whole thing after the thousand-year reign and everything is he's going to take the kingdom that is now under his rule and authority. The, all authority has been given in him, and what does he do with his authority? He takes it, brings everything under his, his authority, and then he hands it to the Father. Why? Love. You are God's love gift to the Son. The church is God's love gift to the Son. I love that. This is about Him and His kingdom and His glory and their eternal relationship. We've been created for Him and His good pleasure. So 
bow the heart today, right? <laughs> Kneel to Jesus today and not at the day of judgment. And so Jesus is from above and is above all and has come into the world to testify on behalf of his Father. Acts 17.30 in closing gives the good picture of this. Acts 17.30-31 gives us a great insight to what Jesus came to tell us. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world and righteousness by a man. Who is that man? The one who has all authority, Jesus Christ, the God-man Jesus Christ, whom he has appointed. And this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. In other words, he rose from the dead. He has power over death, the one thing we don't have power over. The message, the message that Jesus came to give from above, church, is the message of Jonah. It's the message of the serpent on the pole. That's the message he came to give. It's the message of verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Though we've been bitten by sin, there's forgiveness and there's the, the life. We identify in his death, we identify in his resurrection. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Why? The wrath of God remains on him. Lord God, we want to thank you that you came down from above, that you humbled yourself to the being a point of a servant, that you willingly suffered and died like that serpent on a pole. You took the sin of the world upon yourself that whoever would believe would not perish but have ever, everlasting life. Lord, may your Holy Spirit do the work of convicting of our sin that we may look fully upon you to be our Savior and that we would no longer have the wrath of God upon us because it was poured out on Jesus in our place. But Lord, not only the saving grace, Lord, that you provided in Jesus, but also the resurrection life. That not only did you save us from sin, you have now put your life in those who believe, and we're to live like Jesus in the power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, full of joy and love and peace, patience and all those things, Lord, that we don't have within ourselves that you freely give through Christ Jesus. Manifest those in your church today in each and every single one of these brothers and sisters. Let it overflow, God, and may that day when we stand before you be a glorious day where we're unashamed. May we not shrink back, Lord, but persevere and seek you with our whole hearts. Lord, you're so good. And anyone here this morning who has never given their hearts to Jesus, do it now. Call out to them. Call out to him. Cry out. And God in no way will reject you. For that is the reason he sent his son, to save those who have been condemned. Praise you, Lord. Praise you, praise you. Thank you for this beautiful time together in your word. 
Bless and keep each one of these in the name of Jesus. Amen.